Uh, it's a great privilege for me to uh, speak at this conference. It's my third year now. Um, it's one of these conferences. I, I asked Dr. Burgraff if I can come. Um, but uh, yeah, lovely to be with you uh, again. And uh, I think if you were here uh, last evening, last night, we had a wonderful time together of worshiping the Lord and uh, a, a fine exposition from uh, Dr. Davey. And I was thinking to myself last night uh, as it all came to a close, and obviously Dr. Davey, he preached so well, I was thinking, I'm so glad I don't have to follow that. And then I realized I was the first session on this morning, so I actually am following him, but uh, there you go. We're going to be in uh, Micah 7. So if you have your Bible open, just to the sound guys, uh, Dr. Burgreff was reading, I think from the NASB, and I'm preaching from the ESV, so I think your texts match what I'll be speaking on. The title of the message is The Culture's Moral Decline, But God's Amazing Grace. The Culture's Moral Decline, But God's Amazing Grace. And friends, it's very easy to look out at our culture today and its moral and ethical decline, especially in the area of sexual ethics and marriage and the family and even government. And, and it's easy to look out and to despair. And I would argue that in our day, uh, pastors are dealing with issues in these areas in ways that 30 years ago, uh, even 10 years ago, we weren't dealing with them. You couldn't have even imagined it. In addition, Christians in general are suffering assault, not only from the outside, but from the inside. Inside the church and inside the nuclear family. But in our passage today... We have instruction on how to view a culture inside and outside the church, a culture that is ethically unraveling, and we learn where our hope should lie. Here is the Jewish prophet Micah, who preached during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. These are kings of Judah. He has reference to Judah in the south, and then Israel, obviously, as well. That's about 750 to 687 BC. And the reason that he is raised up is given to us in chapter 3 and verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah has a realistic view of the ethical problems of his immediate context, injustice, oppression, spiritual and moral decline. And he warned that God will bring judgment through the Assyrians upon the northern and the southern kingdoms, but Micah is also full of hope, and he knows his God, and he speaks about the certain advance of God's kingdom. So we see in Micah's words both judgment and mercy. He's realistic about sufferings, but full of hope about the future. And what is interesting is that up until now, Micah has been conveying God's word to the people. In chapter 1, it begins with the word of the Lord coming to Micah and him proclaiming it to the people for six chapters. But in chapter 7, we see a change in what we read. Now in chapter 7, we see Micah's own heart revealed. We see that the word that the man has proclaimed has powerfully impacted the man himself, his own heart. And so we can learn. We can learn from Micah 
on how to be molded by God's word in times of moral and ethical declension around us and how we should think and act in response. And the first thing from Micah that we learn is that for the believer, moral declension makes us mourn. Moral declension makes us mourn. That's the first point. Woe is me, says Micah. Micah, as it were, walks around his community and he sees godlessness everywhere and he laments. He mourns. And that is a right response, brothers and sisters. It is a right response. We should mourn immorality around us. But what's important to remember here is that Micah is also looking at the visible people of God, those who profess to know and love Yahweh. So even as we look at this from a New Testament perspective, we must see that although we may bemoan our moral declension in the culture, we must first bemoan moral declension in the church. We should be, in a sense, a people in mourning as we look around our culture in ethical decline. But more than that, we ought to be a people in mourning as we look around the church in ethical decline. Woe is me, says Micah. And then we see a graphic lamentation. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no ripe first, uh, first ripe fig that my soul desires. The picture, familiar to Micah, is a farmer going to reap his harvest, and there is none. There is none, no fruit. He describes the hopelessness of Israel and Judah, and he sees this fruitless ethical declension, first in the area of godless leadership. It continues, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them like a, a thorn hedge. Godly leadership has been swept away. The prince, the judge, not one upright man remains. Corruption, murder. Their hands, note, their hands, plural, are involved as, as if to do as much evil as they can. Leaders do not exercise authority righteously. They love a bribe. And like briars and thorn hedges, if you get too near to them, you're going to injure yourself. A crisis of godless leadership in the culture is in view. And we can easily bring to mind, can't we? Corrupt leadership in various nations and countries around the world. We think of North Korea and, 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 and countries in Africa. Look at the Middle East. But what about our own in the West? What about the US, Canada, places in Europe, even my own home country of England? What about corruption in making laws that murder babies in the womb and the money being made from it? You see, we see the horrific decapitation of hundreds of babies by Hamas, and we, we rightfully recoil in horror. And yet the U.S. Supreme Court has legalized the decapitation of millions through abortion over the years as Planned Parenthood has had its way. Godless leadership. 
corrupt, murderous. But what about godless leadership in the church? What about godless leadership in the church and the pastor who pastors for selfish gain? Or the one who tells his people, peace, peace, when there is no peace and compromises the word of God on sexuality and marriage just so he stays popular and stays in office. Some even preach Christ, as Paul tells us from Philippians, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. False shepherds that Ezekiel calls out, false teachers that Jesus warns of, those who are like wolves in sheep's clothing, predators of the people, blood on their hands, and how we need to mourn this, brothers and sisters, how we need to mourn this as Micah does. But judgment is coming, indeed has come. Look at verse 4. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. The watchman on the walls of the city, Micah has been one, have warned the people of their iniquities and God's coming judgment. Now that is no longer a date in the diary. It is a day at hand. It is today. It's too late. It's now. For Micah's people, it will be this Assyrian invasion, an attack from the enemy. But God ordains an attack from the enemy as judgment on the people. And when the enemy attacks, confusion reigns. You see that word confusion. You see confusion is part of the judgment of God. It's part of the judgment of God. And oh, how that describes our society. Confused on sanctity of life. Confused on identity and gender issues. Confused on the ordinance of marriage and the roles of a husband and wife. Confused on whether eldership is for qualified men only. An ethically confused culture, but also an ethically confused church. And part of the judgment of God is a giving over from God to one's own sin, as Paul tells us in Romans 1. Lawlessness and wrong leadership is part of the judgment of God on a nation and on the church, so that Isaiah can say in Isaiah 3, verse 12, in his word on the judgment of God, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Speaking of immature leadership and women assuming places of leadership, that is not right for a lack of godless men who should be in that position. And look at this visitation of God. It's also revealed in relational breakdown and the destruction of the family. Verse 5, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. No one trusts anyone and all are at enmity with each other. Neighbors and friends, instead of looking out for each other, now suspect one another. What about the family? Well, we see betrayal is in view. You you can't trust the one who lies in your arms. Maybe it's the betrayal of a Delilah who lay in the arms of Samson. Maybe it's a a marital infidelity that's in view. A a husband can't trust his wife. And then what about the children? Verse 6. Here we've got a picture of a a father and a mother, a son and a daughter and a daughter-in-law, which means the son 
is married. Mike has already alluded to problems between the husband and, and wife, and now he's saying the son is rising up against his father, the daughter against the mother, the daughter-in-law siding with the daughter against the mom. Micah even calls them the man's enemies. It's true that many men have abused and abdicated their roles of head of the home, but the culture and a weak church has removed the man as head of the home. And so what we're seeing is rebellion against husbands and children rising up against mother and father. Friends, the culture is corrupt and marriage and the family are in crisis. This is one of the great reasons for this conference. That's the picture in Micah 7. For some of you here today, it'll be the picture even in your own lives. And maybe it will be to come. Discord in the family, children rebelling against parents. We have turned away from God's design for the family and sex, and we are reaping the fruit of God's judgment, even as the enemy is fully engaged in the act. And we see the seventh commandment and adultery. We see the ninth commandment and lying and betrayal is in view. But we also see, and mark this, we also see the fifth commandment and honoring parents is being broken. And you know it is a sign of the last days and cultural moral declension when children disrespect and disobey parents. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. And I am talking here about not just children, but about adults in the adult sense, not with regards to obedience to parents, but with regards to honoring mother and father, which is a lifelong command to your parents and to your in-laws. And it is an egregious sin not to do so. I'm in the UK on sabbatical at the moment, and uh, one of my good friends, a very experienced pastor, he's a retired pastor now, he travels around the UK, uh, bringing encouragement and counseling pastors. He recently told me of the increasing number of stories he is hearing of children in Christian homes, Christian homes of, of pastors even, who are rebelling against parents and the Lord. And this rebellion against God and parents is particularly manifesting itself in the rebellion of the age and an embracing and living out of an LGBTQ ideology. The enemy's attack is hitting the family and even the front line, even the families of those who lead the church. Jesus describes the effect of his own coming. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And then he uses Micah 7 verse 6. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He doesn't mean that he loves to break up families. What he means is that his radical call to discipleship does disrupt relationships. 
And Micah is a spectator who witnesses this scene of moral declension. He sees the visible people of God and their hypocrisy. He sees ungodliness and every major role in society corrupted. Friends, neighbors, family. So he can put no confidence in anyone. And Micah mourns, woe is me. And we look around and we rightly mourn, friends. The force of influence is upon the church from society. The visible church has become more shaped by the world than the world shaped by it. We do not see a society becoming more biblical in its mindset and values in issues of purity, sexuality, marriage, and life. Moral declension makes us mourn. But note this, mourning is not the same as despair. Despair has lost hope and has nowhere to go. But biblical mourning knows where to look when moral declension is all around. Which means, firstly, moral declension makes us mourn, but secondly, mourning turns us to God. And that's the second thing we learn from Micah. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Mourning turns us to God. Where do you put your hope for the transformation of society and the reviving of the church? Well, Micah doesn't put his confidence in the visible people of God to transform it. Our response to moral decline around us isn't to place our hope in here, but up there. Rather than run away from him, because of the trial, faith turns to him because of the trial and runs to him and pours out grief to him. Don't look at the news, don't look at the books, don't look at people. Be centered on God, to be God-centered and draw near to him. Micah is resolved to turn to God. I will look. In the midst of all that's swirling around out there, when you survey the scene as a parent and you fear for your children's future, where will you look? Where is your focus? I will look to the Lord. Not glance, but look. Focus on him. Look at his character, especially on the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross... Survey the wondrous cross where the Prince of Glory died. You don't look to the princes of the world to make a change. You look to the Prince of Heaven. Survey him. I will look, says Micah. Next, I will wait. Patience in waiting for God to act. He is the Lord of my salvation, he says here. He's my personal savior. He will not abandon me. Do you know that as a personal reality in your life? I will look, I will wait, my God will hear me, he's my God. I have union with him through Christ. Micah doesn't say, my God will immediately fix me or change my circumstances, though we will pray for that. He says, my God will hear me. He's the one who really understands your situation, whatever that is. And he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He hears you. The Lord Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. And you know what? Whatever grief you are suffering, no, he feels it, he knows it, and his tears are bigger than yours. So moral declension makes us mourn, first thing, but mourning turns us to God. And then thirdly, God produces humble hope. God produces humble hope. We see that in verses 8 to 10. I won't read them for the sake of time as it's moving on now. 
Now we see Micah speaking, as it were, even to himself, maybe as a representative father or even a representative of the people of Israel. He recites to himself some great central truths about God in verses 8 to 10. Maybe we can see them on the screen at some point. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. He says, I will fall, but I will rise. Don't gloat over me. And then you see in uh, verse 9 there, in the middle, he says, the Lord will plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will execute it for me, not against me. He's going to bring me out into the light. I, I will look upon his vindication. There are real enemies all around Micah, even in his own home. Even sinning against him. And Micah speaks as one who knows he has a God. That his enemies will be trampled and justice will be done. We might all bear great burdens right now in the face of resistance because we've stood for Jesus in the area of biblical sexuality in the workplace, perhaps. And that's increasingly coming more and more pressurized for us in the workplace and issues of forced speech and so on, freedom of religion, in school, in the home, as you try to parent biblically and there's pushback from your children even. You may be truly sinned against, but learn from Micah, friends. Learn from Micah. He's bold in the Lord. The Lord will act. I will hope. I will, I will, I will. Don't miss this. I will hope. But notice, his hope is humble hope. It is humble hope. He's hoping, but he is humble. You see it there in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. You see, it's not mainly that he's being uh, sinned against, but that he sins. He's, woe is me, is like Isaiah's, woe is me. When he sees God rightly, he sees that he is part of the problem. He, Isaiah, has unclean lips as well as the people he dwells amongst. And I submit to you, friends, pastorally, that this is the broken, repentant, humble posture we need. Sin around us and sin against us reveals sin in us. Sin around us and sin against us reveals sin in us. In this way, we can be humble and hopeful in dark times and submit even to God's providential discipline in our own lives as we repent from sin he reveals in us. Your biggest problem isn't a woke culture or relational strife or family tensions outside. It is your sin inside. This is the great battle we all face. And the question is, will we find, by God's grace, that kind of humility, that kind of humble hope that enables us to see our culture, our families, ourselves in that way, and I believe that God is using these days around us to bring the church to new levels of humility. Because it is hopeful humility that Micah shows. And he knows God will vindicate him and plead his cause. The people of God will be vindicated in the end. It ends well for the Christian because we have an advocate before the Father, even as John tells us in 1 John, 
The advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than be angry or despairing, Micah has humble hope for a future revival of God's people and a future that includes the nations. Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. Revival. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. Mission to the nations. And then he speaks of it. Micah understands that having received mercy, mercy must go out to the whole world. God's mercy is for those who have betrayed him. But also for the, for the Gentiles, Assyria and Egypt, the worst of enemies, and, and even the remotest peoples from sea to sea, mountain to mountain, will come and bend the knee to the Lord. But there will be judgment for the unrepentant, verse 13. The earth will be desolate. They will bend the knee when they hear his sentence. Justice will be done. There are two destinies for all people in all of history. So we need to get on the right side of history today. And this humble hope motivates us, you know, then to care about the lost. I've said this before. This moral and ethical decline around us in the area of sexual ethics is a mission moment for the church. We don't want to be angry, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ Christians who want to bring down the government with a sword in our hands. We want to be repentant, humble, hopeful Christians who have mercy in our hearts and the sword of truth in our hands, even as we die for the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail and he will bring in some of the worst of his enemies through his amazing grace and one day, one day, the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Moral declension makes us mourn. Mourning turns us to God. God produces humble hope, and then finally, or penultimately, hoping God makes us pray. Hoping God makes us pray. I need to move quickly here. I've only got a few minutes. Verses 14 to 17. Hoping God makes us pray. Brothers and sisters, that's the most powerful thing we can do, you see, is to pray. See what empires are brought down through prayer. Praying has power. The worldly can't imagine that people on their knees could do anything about anything. But prayer changes things and it, it moves the heart of God like nothing else. Not that we bend the Lord's will to ours, but that our prayers and desires become his. So we need to let our mourning turn us to God in humble hope and persistent prayer. Because only he has the power to revive his people. Only he has the power to build in cultural renewal. And only he has the power to save the nations. And so verse 14 is a petition. Micah calls to the shepherd. And we hear echoes of Psalm 23, which will be fulfilled in John 10, as the good shepherd Jesus lays his life down for his sheep. And he calls in the other sheep too. Micah presses upon God his own character, says, do it again as you did before. As in the days of old, he says, that's how to pray, brothers and sisters. Boldness based on God's character. Then verse 15, the speaker changes and God answers. Like I did in the Exodus, I will do again in a second Exodus. When the Lord will rescue his people. But this time the nations in verse 16 and 17 will be included. Not just Israel, but Jesus in a better Exodus on the cross. 
brings in the nations and they will come in repentance and faith and the fear of the Lord will be their theme. So here's how to respond to moral and ethical decline around, friends. Moral declension makes us mourn. Mourning turns us to God. God produces humble hope. Hope in God makes us pray. And finally then, prayer to God ends in praise for his amazing grace. And we see that in verses 18 to 20, very famous verses. With a play on the meaning of Micah's own name, he says, who is a God like you? The answer is no one. Our God is unique, the only true sovereign God. Holy, holy, holy. The light in darkness, the shepherd of his sheep, the sovereign Lord of the nations. None is like him, but you know what marks him out, friends? Above all, is his grace and mercy in forgiving sinners like you and me. For the chosen remnant, he pardons sin. Yes, he is just, and his anger is righteous. But he doesn't remain angry forever. He delights in steadfast love and mercy. He loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy. Like the, son, uh, like the father in the prodigal, he is eager to show compassion and mercy to you today. Again and again and again. Your sins are trodden underfoot. Drowned in the ocean of his redeeming love in Christ. Christ absorbing God's wrath in your place. You are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven today, robed in the righteousness of God in his sight. You might have present sorrows, friends. You might have an unclear immediate future, but let's sing with Micah. There is no God like you. Oh, gracious, merciful God. And when will God do it? When will he have compassion? Well, for Micah, it was future. And for us, it is past. Look at verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you sworn to our fathers from days of old. You remember Mary at the end of the Magnificat. You know, she basically quotes from Micah 7.20, knowing that out of her womb and out of Bethlehem will come one who fulfills God's word so that everything Micah hopes for in the future has become for us what God did in Jesus in the past. He has done it for us, brothers and sisters. He's crushed the serpent's head. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What an amazing mercy. Who is like our God? This is our song, and this is the new song of the nations in Revelation. Revelation 5 tells us, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We will forever sing of the amazing grace of God in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for sinners like us. So how do you fight fear, friends? By singing praise to an amazingly gracious God. It fuels hope in the face of dark days and moral declension. And so we learn from Micah, moral declension makes us mourn. But mourning turns us to God so that God produces humble hope and hope in God makes us pray with the result that prayer to God ends in praise for his amazing grace. The culture's moral decline, but God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us this morning. It comes with power as your spirit applies it to our hearts. I pray that you would do more than we could even imagine amongst us today, even as we learn to respond to moral and ethical decline around us in the way of Micah to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.